this recorded presentation from Missouri Farm Bureau's Commodity Conference. I'm Leslie Holloway, Senior Director of Regulatory Affairs for Missouri Farm Bureau. This session's lineup starts with B.J. Tanksley's update on action in the state capitol. Next, the session's headline speaker, American Farm Bureau attorney Travis Cushman, discusses federal court rulings on WOTUS, dicamba, as well as other legal challenges with which he has extensive experience that have a direct impact on farmers and ranchers. The session closes with Spencer Tuma's update on congressional action, my overview of deregulation and rural health care initiatives, and Kelly Smith's highlights pertaining to commodity advisory committees. We hope you enjoy this informative session and thank you for watching. And to the third session of our virtual commodity conference, I'm Blake Hurst, President of Missouri Farm Bureau. Uh, we're certainly sorry that we couldn't do this in person, but uh, so far, I think with the first two sessions, we've had uh, good participation and good question and answers from the virtual format, uh, so it's working well from us. We'll have eight different sessions. Um, when we finish here today, we'll re re uh, reconvene this evening for the fourth session. People are participating in three different ways, whether through Zoom, a conference call, or through Facebook Live. We're also recording each session, and you'll be able to see those recordings at mofb.org forward slash event forward slash commodity. If you're watching by Zoom, you can ask a question anytime by going to the uh, question and answer bar at the bottom of your screen and clicking on that and typing the question, and then I'll read the question. Uh, if you're calling in by telephone and you have a question, uh, press star nine on your phone. That's equivalent to raising your hands. Uh, we'll recognize you when we uh, get to you in the queue and uh, unmute your phone. You can ask a question. Please, when you do that, uh, let us know your name and your county. Uh, we'll uh, start off. Uh, we're going to start off. We're going to change it up just a little bit, but we're going to start off uh, by some uh, staff presentations. And uh, we have, uh, we'll go, uh, we'll begin with uh, BJ Tanksley. Uh, Director of State Legislative Affairs. BJ, how are you today? Doing good, Blake. Thanks for the, thanks for the introduction. Um, it's been a busy day, actually, in the state capitol. While we've been doing the Commodity Conference, the state Senate is actually live debating um, the crime bill, which is uh, the special session called by, by Governor Parson. Um, just Briefly, I, it's not something that we're uh, intimately involved in, but it is going on. Um, it seems like the uh, few Democrats from St. Louis seem to be filibustering the bill at this point, looking for changes on the residency requirements for St. Louis police officers. Um, and and it, at this point, they have said that they're willing to go for a long time if they don't get a compromise on those changes, which have been proposed in the language. Um, so that seems to be the, that, that's the hottest news in the Capitol. If you, if you, Tune into the news tonight. That's what they'll be talking about as far as state level stuff. Uh, from Missouri Farm Bureau's perspective, um, we're also lucky. Uh, Spencer and I will get to visit with this same group um, tomorrow. Uh, we will be visiting with the group about the election results. So I'm sure everybody has elections and election results on their mind. Uh, but Spencer and I will do a little deeper dive on both the primary elections from just this week and the November elections. So tune in tomorrow uh, for the midday report on that, where we will dive deep into the elections. Uh, and a couple of other um, state level issues that have been uh, keeping us busy. Uh, we were lucky and happy to see um, 
middle of, uh, well, early July, which, uh, right before the 4th of July, where the governor signed the broadband omnibus bill, which came out of the legislature, which was one of the priorities of Missouri Farm Bureau. We were happy to see that get done. Um, and during that announcement, there were several whispers of, hey, make sure you're paying attention to the governor's press conference this week. You may be excited to see what comes out of it. Uh, we were hoping to see some funding for, for the broadband development fund, um, but had no idea of the level um, where they announced somewhere in the neighborhood of $20 million of CARES Act funding to go through the state processes uh, to facilitate broadband deployment. Now, some of that money is going straight towards reimbursing providers and others is going towards telemedicine and educational processes, but it's a major step forward um, in broadband in the state of Missouri. So we're really excited about that. I know at the federal level as well as the state level, broadband and helping to facilitate broadband has been a major conversation. So we're excited to see uh, the state taking those steps moving forward. Another thing I know a lot of our, our members are interested in in an earlier presentation this week, we talked about, or, or this today, um, we talked about uh, meat processing was a major part of the conversation. Um, and the state is still looking at meat processing options and how we can support our current processors that are in the state. Uh, there was some funding put into the budget, again, from CARES Act funding to support those small and medium-sized processors as well as what does the state need to do to um, bring new processing to the state of Missouri. So that's a few things that have been keeping us busy as well as over the last couple of months following along with the elections. Like I said, Spencer and I will dive deep into those tomorrow, give you a little update or a little preview for November as well as an update coming out of Tuesday's elections. So uh, that's what's keeping me busy at the state level. Um, with that, Blake, I think I'll hand it back to you. All right, thank you, BJ. Uh, our next speaker, and we're really uh, pleased to have him uh, joining us from Washington, D.C. Our next speaker is Travis Cushman. He's the AFBF Senior Counsel for Public Policy, and he manages uh, American Farm Bureau's nationwide litigation on all issues facing agriculture, including trade, property rights, access to public lands, and environmental regulations. Some of you may recall the excellent presentation on California's Prop 12, uh, that Travis gave last uh, fall at our December at December at our annual meeting in Tantera. He's worked with uh, Attorney General Eric Schmidt uh, defending farmers and ranchers in this case. And he's also been involved in a more recent case uh, challenge against Missouri's lake nutrient criteria. Uh, Travis, we appreciate having you with us and uh, look forward to hearing what you have to say. So here's Travis Cushman. Thank you, President Hurst. I'm sorry I couldn't be with you all in person, I, I was I was at the Missouri uh, Farm Bureau annual meeting last December in Osage Beach. Had a great time with President Hurst and Dan Cass and his family and the rest of the Missouri Farm Bureau team. Uh, had a really great night at Trivia, uh, and, and that's certainly a night not to be missed. Um, as President Hurst said, this, this topic is going to be on how judicial decisions, often in courts far, far away, can have a nationwide impact on agriculture. And I think that the best way to start this is, is to think back to two months ago, on June 3rd, uh, during the peak of the growing season, a San Francisco court sitting 2,000 miles away from Missouri vacated the registrations for all major dicamba products. That is, it said that all dicamba is, is now illegal. At that time, soybean and cotton farmers had planted an estimated 64 million acre, acres dicamba-tolerant crops across the country. Growers have invested billions of dollars to purchase dicamba tolerant seeds and hundreds of millions of dollars in dicamba herbicides. That court, the Ninth Circuit, 
generally only has jurisdiction over one state where the canvas registered in Arizona. Moreover, the plaintiffs have never even challenged the registrations for two of the vacated products. How did this happen? I hope you leave this presentation with three things. First, a greater appreciation for the courts. Second, uh, perhaps pick up some of my own personal frustrations with how things are done with the courts and Congress. And finally, develop a better understanding of why the courts and not Congress so often seem to make important laws. And so with that, I'm going to attempt to uh, shift over to a slideshow. Um, it says that the host has disabled my screen sharing. If I could get screen sharing, I'd like to show a couple slides if possible. All right, we should be, you should be ready to go, Travis. Perfect. Is that, nope. We have your slide, Travis. Here we go, all right. There we go, there we go. So, I apologize for that little. All right, so, start with a brief civics lesson how the courts operate. Uh, as you may recall, we have three branches of government, the legislative, executive, and judicial branches. Uh, I would say most, uh, most of Farm Bureau's work is usually on the lobbying side, dedicated to that legislative and executive branches of making the laws and, and seeing how they're carried out. But the judicial branch is very important because it's in charge of making sure those laws follow the Constitution. Uh, it's also important to remember that, you know, when you, when you forget about the, the judicial branch, that's the branch that can undo the hard work that is done uh, in making the laws in the first place. So, with this in mind, uh, in the court system, you, we have state and federal courts. Uh, each of those can be more or less broken into trial courts, courts of appeal, and Supreme Court. This is a map, and for those that uh, are unable to see the slideshow, uh, I have a map of, of the 11 different circuit courts across the country. Missouri falls in the Eighth Circuit. And so to think back to the initial question, why is it that the court that is in the Ninth Circuit, that is 2,000 miles away, able to make law for someone sitting in the Eighth Circuit? So, I apologize, my, my screen's having some issues. So there, there, there are a couple of reasons why this happens. One is a more jaded view, which is that uh, courts are where you get things done. Congress is increasingly dysfunctional and it is harder and harder to get things that are major accomplished there. And even if it were not so dysfunctional, you can't always get what you want through Congress because perhaps your view is not one that is shared with the majority of folks and maybe uh, you have a view such as that you don't want pesticides to be around, and so you go to the courts to get that carried out. But don't forget that courts are also supposed to serve this valuable role of interpreting the laws. Courts are, intent, are, are there to make sure that an agency in the executive branch 
uh, is properly making a law consistent with Congress's statute. Similarly, the courts are there to make sure that that statute that Congress passes does not violate the Constitution. And another important thing to keep in mind is that uh, you have political issues at, at play as well. Um, the folks that are making the laws are primarily politicians, whereas uh, the founders imagined the courts as an area that is more immune to, uh, to political battles by allowing judges to have lifetime, lifetime tenure. So judges are supposedly, supposed to be immune from these political uh, uh, pushes of folks, although um, I think most folks would, dis would dispute that that's actually the case. Another problem that frequently arises is that uh, when politicians write laws, they're not always the best at uh, being exact with the way they prescribe things. Uh, whether it's laziness or uh, incompetency or being sloppy, uh, as we'll discuss in a few minutes, uh, the results of Congress's laws are often unclear. And it's often then left to the courts to figure out what it was that Congress meant to do in the first place. So I've changed to a slide that shows the political makeup of the various courts of appeals. And on the right-hand column is, uh, represents judges that were nominated by Democratic presidents. And the left column is, are those that were nominated by Republican. And you can see if you have an issue that you want to bring to the courts, you're going to want to make sure you're in one where other judges have a closer political persuasion to you. And so if you are challenging uh, an environmental law, for instance, you would probably want to be the ninth or fourth circuit. Um, that's, that's where most of these battles usually happen. Whereas uh, a more, con more conservative type judge, you might, you might find yourself in the sixth, seventh, or eighth circuits. And it, you know, it's, it's important to keep in mind that the Supreme Court, which you know, as we discussed is, is the court right above the courts of appeals, it very rarely hears cases. So the decision that you get at a court of appeals is usually going to be the last decision on the, on the matter. So it's very important when you're picking a case that you're in the circuit that most aligns with your viewpoint, which is why the Ninth Circuit often gets these cases. But that does not answer the question that we first started off with, which is why does that Ninth Circuit get to make law for someone sitting in the Eighth Circuit or somewhere else? And there are two reasons for that. First, it's often what Congress requires. Many statutes say that when you're challenging a certain statute, you have to bring it in one of the courts of appeals, and it can be any of the courts of appeals. So to the extent we have an issue with that, we can blame Congress. The second reason is that uh, for other types of cases that start in the trial courts, those trial courts or district courts have a lot of discretion to, to determine the appropriate remedy. And that is the next kind of a case we'll discuss after um, the first example. The first example of where Congress has vested authority in the Courts of Appeals is, uh, I think, highlighted by this Dicamba case that we saw from two months ago. Um, remember that we have these three branches. So, so Congress created FIFRA, which is the statute that enables uh, uh, the registration of pesticides. The EPA, in the executive branch, is the one that enacts that statute. So that statute itself provides that, uh, that any challenge to what EPA decides can be brought in any court of appeals where uh, one of the plaintiffs sits. So, the, so 
FIFRA itself places jurisdiction directly in the Court of Appeals, allowing a plaintiff to skip the district court. In the case of Dicamba, I have a map in front right now that shows in red all 34 states where Dicamba is registered. This map in blue shows the purview and jurisdiction of the Ninth Circuit. And going back and forth, we see that the Ninth Circuit is huge, encompassing nine states, yet it seems to not really encompass any of those where Dicamba is registered, except for one, Arizona. It's not unusual that a plaintiff would want to, to pick the Ninth Circuit for this kind of thing. Uh, forum shopping is, is very, very common in this. And in fact, I can't think of a single FIFRA case that does not happen in the Ninth Circuit. Uh, Chlorperifos, Glyphosate, Enlist Duo, uh, the ESA Megasuit, Neonics, all of those challenges happen in the Ninth Circuit because uh, remember that graph we looked at, that's just where uh, those judges are most likely to have an ideological view similar to the plaintiffs and FIFRA from Congress says that's where you're allowed to bring these cases. And if I might bring up the FIFRA statute again, that second highlighted portion says that those courts will have jurisdiction to affirm or set aside the order complained of. So if uh, the plaintiffs don't like the EPA's registration of a product and the Ninth Circuit agrees, they do have that jurisdiction to, across the country, set aside that registration. So it's not unusual to forum shop. What is a little bit unusual here is what the Ninth Circuit did with this decision. Uh, as some background, the court found that EPA failed to adequately estimate the damage of the camera for various reasons. But usually when that happens, uh, the circuit, the court will uh, bring the, it's called remanding the, the decision. It will shoot the, shoot the registration back down to the agency, keep it in place so as not to disrupt the marketplace and tell the agency to finish doing its job, fill in whatever it felt the Ninth Circuit felt like was, uh, was an issue previously in the registration process. Here, the Ninth Circuit didn't do that. Instead, it vacated the registrations, finding that the, the defects it, it believed existed were too major for the, for the uh, EPA to ever fix. And as a result, in the middle of the growing season, we had the loss of these incredibly valuable uh, Gamma products. Um, and something else that was a little bit odd here is that the plaintiffs in this case only challenged Bayer's registration. They did not challenge BASF's or Corteva's. Yet the Ninth Circuit in its order also vacated those registrations. And in terms of why it did that, all I can say is it was just bad law and, uh, and bad, they just did a very poor job. And I think that is an area uh, that is gonna be very uh, ripe for judicial review on appeal. Um, this decision obviously had shockwaves throughout the agricultural industry. I have a slide right now that shows uh, statements from various uh, Department of Agriculture's uh, commissioners uh, on uh, this decision, including in the middle, there is a statement by Missouri Director of Agriculture, Chris Kuhn, explaining that when, when you take a product off market in the middle of the growing season, it's going to have incredibly disruptive effects uh, that are likely going to exceed any potential uh, damage from keeping the product online. So as a result of this decision, uh, 
AFBF and, and Farm Bureau's uh, lobbied EPA to for what's called an existing stocks order. And what this does is it allows existing stocks of Dicamba to be used. Uh, EPA did grant that, um, which the plaintiffs objected to. Uh, AFBF and some other grower groups filed a motion uh, in the Ninth Circuit asking that this, this existing stocks order be retained uh, because it's incredibly important uh, for, for, for instance, for soybean growers, there was between two and $10 billion uh, of loss at stake for cotton growers who had 400 to 800 million dollars at stake. But I think it's, it's really important to keep in mind that you know, for those that have already invested into campus systems, it's really important to be able to continue using those for the growing season because of the integrity of the FIFRA registration process. If a farmer can't trust that, uh, that, that, that the system he's investing in beginning of the season will be available a few weeks later, there's no certainty available for that farmer uh, to figure out how he's going to plan a season. Uh, similarly, you, know, you need to view farmers' reasonable expectations. If, if they have made their investments on this, they need to be able to count on that. So between uh, the issues of FIFRA's integrity and reasonable expectations, uh, we, we argue in that circuit that, that we should at least allow these, these farmers that have purchased the Gamba to finish out the growing season. And, uh, I don't know if this is somewhat of a uh, quiet concession on the part of the Ninth Circuit, but they did allow uh, the EPA order to stay in place. So the future for this is, is fairly unclear. The next registration is due by December for Dicamba of this year. Um, it is uncertain if the EPA could follow this new um, requirements that the Ninth Circuit has laid out or really for any pesticide uh, for that matter, uh, given these new kind of exacting standards Ninth Circuit keeps on pushing on the EPA. Uh, there's more or less no legislative hope that Congress will change things, um, but we do have appeals going on on this. So hopefully uh, as, as this continues going up, uh, things will change and we'll have a better uh, judicial landscape. So, so that was an example of a case, again, where uh, Congress vests any court, that it's the Court of Appeals, to handle a registration nationwide. And that is why San Francisco court is able to dictate uh, what uh, um, pesticide products, herbicide products are available to farmers in Missouri. The next example I'm going to talk about is the, a more traditional kind of case where um, where a district court, which is the trial level, uh, will have a case and will have to decide if it wants to have a decision that is more regional and only impacting that state or nationwide. And I think a great example of how this can play out in many different ways is the Waters United States rule, WOTUS. Uh, WOTUS, it has been the bane of, of many folks' existence the past 80 years. Um, to give you some background, in 1972, the Clean Water Act was, was passed, and that prohibits a discharge of pollutants from point source into navigable waters without a permit. What is a navigable water? The statute defines navigable water as waters of the United States. No other clarification of what is a waters of the United States. And to recall from earlier, I mentioned that much of these problems start when Congress is either lazy or whatever you want to call it, and is does not do a very good job of, of providing what the law is, now it's left to the courts. And in this case, uh, the EPA and the Corps of Engineers 
to figure out what does that mean? What are waters of the United States? It's an incredibly unclear uh, phrasing. And so we have been in battles for decades now trying to figure out what that means. This is incredibly important to figure out what it means because a violation of the statute uh, invokes civil and criminal fines. Uh, a, a pollutant includes dirt. So uh, if, if you, you plow land that is considered a WOTUS uh, and move dirt around into the WOTUS, even though it looks like dry land to you, that could incur huge fines. Uh, there's even uh, prison penalties involved. Um, to get a permit to, to be able to discharge into a WOTUS, on average, costs about a quarter million dollars and takes nine months. So it's not really reasonable to be trying to get permits for your average uh, um, thing you want to do on your farm. So the 20, in 2015, the EPA put out a rule that uh, was, was a pretty unclear and, and huge land grab on behalf of the agency. Um, it, it considered what we consider more or less dry land features that occasionally get wet to be a WOTUS. Um, in 2018, the Trump administration attempted to uh, suspend it from going in place by passing a rule um, that just suspended it, it from being enacted. That was challenged and a district court in South Carolina found that that mechanism was unlawful, that you, you have to go through a more proper notice and comment rulemaking, traditional rulemaking to get rid of the rule. And rather than just stopping the rule in South Carolina, it suspended it nationwide. And to do that invoked the wide discretionary powers that district courts possess. Then we had, um, at the same time, these challenges to that rule uh, led by AFBF and states such as Missouri. Uh, Missouri uh, AG was, was instrumental in, in these lawsuits attacking this 2015 rule that was this huge land grab. I have on the screen right now a map of, of what resulted from these lawsuits, and that is across the country you had a patchwork of cases where courts would find that, yes, this law was unlawful, but they would not strike it nationwide. They only struck it within their region or among the states that were challenging the law. So we had 27 and a half states, more or less, that uh, where the law was struck, the 2015 Lotus Rule, and then another 22 and a half states where the 2015 rule was allowed to go into effect. Currently, uh, there is a new rule defining WOTUS called the Navigable Waters Protection Rule. And we believe that that rule is, is, provides much greater clarity and certainty in uh, describing what are waters of the United States. And there have been, uh, I believe right now, there are 13 challenges to that across the country. Um, there is one particular challenge in California in a court that, you know, again, is the, the uh, environmental folks' usual place where they go for these kinds of cases uh, that was brought by several of the uh, more democratic-leaning states. And we were pretty worried that the judge there might stop the rule from going into effect nationwide. However, uh, he didn't. You know, judges aren't always political creatures. Uh, this judge, I, I thought, did a fantastic job of, of looking at uh, the merits of the case and said that the states hadn't proved that they're likely to win. And he declined to issue any injunction nationwide, much less, you know, local injunction on the rule. At the same time, there was a Colorado judge who felt the law uh, did go against the Clean Water Act and stopped it from going in place, 
but not nationwide, just in Colorado. So he had a bit more discretion there and, and kept a, a more local, um, local ruling. So I, I think it's interesting there, you, you kind of see this interplay of how you know, some judges decide that their rule is bad enough that they want to ban it nationwide. Other times they keep it more regional. So kind of in conclusion, you know, we're discussing why, why a court across the country gets to make law. You know, it, when we have problems with it, it's often a problem of Congress, right? They, they're the ones that drafted a very unclear law sometimes, and it's just up to courts to try to figure out what it was they meant. Uh, sometimes there are just you no know, political uh, biases at play. And other times, again, Congress vests a court of appeal to make these decisions. So even though that court of appeal might not have much relevance to, to your daily life normally, Congress has given that the power to, to make those decisions. And with that, I'll be happy to take any questions. All right, thank you very much. Uh, Travis, we have a question, for a definitional question. Um, Chris wants to know what is a point source? So for the listeners and watchers, uh, explain the difference between a point source and other kinds of pollution. That is a fantastic question. So the Clean Water Act prohibits a discharge from a point source into a navigable water. A point source is defined as, the simplest way to think of it is, is the place where a pollutant leaves and is discharged uh, at the very beginning of its life. Um, by definition, by statute, a CAFO is defined as a point source, uh, but groundwater is not. So that distinction of point source and non-point source pollution uh, is, is constantly being litigated. Uh, there is actually a recent Supreme Court case on that, the County of Maui, um, where the question of whether or not uh, um, a pollutant that goes from a point source into groundwater and eventually into navigable water, whether or not that is considered a discharge from a point source. Hey, thank you. Uh, you. Again, you can answer, ask questions by typing in into your Zoom screen uh, by pressing star nine on your phone. Uh, Travis, a quick update on what's happening with the Prop 12 case that uh, the Missouri Attorney General has joined uh, AFBF in, in litigating. Yes, yeah, so uh, the Prop 12 litigation, uh, as a reminder for folks, uh, California passed a ballot initiative last year that uh, bans the sale of pork that is not grown within pretty exacting requirements. Uh, we believe that less than 1% of current pork probably meets this production today. Uh, it's, it requires that sows be given at least 24 square feet uh, per sow, which is definitely more than, than would currently be in place. And the way it does this is it says that uh, any, any um, hog, market hog that enters California must have been raised by these requirements. Uh, so, so we have challenged that under the Commerce Clause because most farmers, probably no farmer sells into California, they sell to a packer who then eventually winds its way up the chain into California. Uh, so we, we believe this violates the Commerce Clause. Uh, we need this to be a long fight. Uh, the district court, the trial level court, dismissed the case pretty quickly. And so now we're at the Court of Appeal stage. Uh, we're gonna be filing our brief on that this month in the Ninth Circuit. And from there, depending on how things go, we'll move on to the Supreme Court. All right, are there any questions? You spent a lot of time on the 
circuit, Travis. Why don't you? What? What? what why, why do you explain why we always end up there? But it's just amazing how much of uh, uh, what happens in our firms here in Missouri is decided in a district court in uh, Sacramento. Again, uh, every FIFRA case I can think of takes place in the Ninth Circuit, it, and that's the way the statute is written. Any other questions, Travis? And of course, we've been involved in questions, uh, cases on glyphosate in the, in the Ninth Circuit or in California, for sure. Uh, just keeps coming and coming from friends to the West. All right, Travis, we appreciate you uh, and uh, did a wonderful job of of kind of outlining some of the uh, challenges we're facing uh, as we uh, work. Our, we used to spend all of our time in the legislative arena, and now we spend more and more in the judicial arena. And I think that's a trend that's likely to continue. Thank you for your time today. Thank you, President Hurst. All right. Um, we'll uh, return to our staff presentations, and uh, I'm going to uh, turn over the screen to Spencer Tuma, who's Director of National Legislative Affairs. Surprise, it's me. Okay, um, thanks Blake, appreciate the introduction. Uh, appreciate the opportunity to be with you all today. I uh, really wish we could all be together in person and uh, as a self-proclaimed extrovert, I will say I'm looking forward to hugging all of you once the threat of this sickness is over uh, and hope you're all staying safe. Uh, really quick update just on a few federal issues. Some of you may have been tuned in to the first session where you heard Scott Bennett from American Farm Bureau give a really great overview of what's going on in Washington. So I'll really quickly recap some of the items that he discussed. Uh, the first thing that's not really related to COVID-19 is the House did pass this year's 2020 Water Resources Development Act. And that's a very, uh, very important bill, particularly for those who live, work, and farm along our inland waterways. Um, that bill is spearheaded by the House and Senate um, House Transportation and Infrastructure Committee, as well as the Senate Environment and Public Works Committee. So uh, if Sam Graves is your congressman, the next time you see him or see a member of his staff, please be sure to thank them for all their work on the 2020 WERDA bill. Uh, it's a very large piece of legislation that's passed every two years that funds inland waterways infrastructure projects for the next two years. So uh, we were pleased to see some priorities included for uh, those who live along the Missouri River as well as the Mississippi River and the Osage River as well. Um, as I mentioned, it's a really long bill. I won't be able to get into all the specifics, but of course happy to take any questions on that. Uh, it did pass the House. It actually passed the House on suspension, which means it went by a voice vote, uh, which there are very few pieces of legislation that pass the House on, um, on a voice vote. So uh, that generally indicates that it's pretty bipartisan and not entirely controversial. The Senate passed their bill out of the Environment and Public Works Committee in May, and we are still awaiting floor action in the Senate. The bill does have to be passed by the end of the year in order to avoid a lapse in funding. So uh, we have all indications that that will happen. Uh, but as you'll as you'll hear in my my next topic, um, there's been a little bit of a uh, all eyes, I guess, have really turned to the pandemic in Washington. There are very few things that are not related to the pandemic that are getting discussed. Um, so I'll move on to the phase four stimulus bill, uh, as Scott called it earlier. Um, right now, that's largely dominating the conversation in Washington, and really those discussions have been ongoing since they passed the CARES Act in late March. 
the House and Senate are basically trying to agree on what's going to go into the phase four package. Uh, the House passed the HEROES Act in June, which was a very large bill. I think overall fiscal impact was about $3 trillion. Uh, there, were, there were some things in the HEROES Act that were probably pretty good for agriculture. There were also some other things in there that uh, the members of our organization would not agree with. And so uh, when that bill arrived in the Senate, Mitch McConnell basically said this, this is a non-starter. The Senate then has um, since released their own version of a package uh, that looks very different from the HEROES Act. A lot of support for agriculture in both of those pieces of legislation. So I do think we are going to get somewhere when it comes to additional assistance for farmers and ranchers. The things that are kind of hanging up those negotiations right now uh, won't surprise many of you on, on this webinar, but um, things like unemployment insurance, liability protection for businesses, those are areas of the legislation where the House and Senate are really far apart on their priorities. So there's a lot of discussions that are taking place between House and Senate leadership and the White House trying to get a deal worked out. We were told initially that they thought they would have a deal by the end of this week. As many of you know, Washington doesn't always work that quickly. So uh, we do hope and, and, and feel pretty confident that we will probably see something coming out of Congress maybe next week. Whether that's a deal or whether that's a final vote, I can't say for certain, uh, but it does sound like negotiations continue to be ongoing, uh, taking steps forward at a, at a fairly slow pace at this point. One thing I wanted to mention quickly is USDA is still accepting applications for their Coronavirus Food Assistance Program, or CFAP. Uh, that program, if you have not heard of it, provides direct assistance to farmers and ranchers who were impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic. And that money was authorized through the CARES Act, which was passed in March. So this program is gonna be administered by your local FSA county office and almost all Missouri commodities are eligible. You can go to farmers.gov CFAP to see if your particular commodities are eligible for funding. The payments for that program are subject to payment limitations, but you can, um, you can um, receive a payment based on a set payment rate for each commodity. So um, as of Monday of this week, Missouri uh, FSA, USDA in Missouri has paid out almost $264 million uh, to Missouri producers accounting for just over 33,000 applications. So if you haven't had a chance to contact your local FSA office, we really encourage you to do that. I will note that a lot of FSA county offices are still not open to the public and open for visitors, but they are available by phone and email and have been working this through the process since the product began. So uh, definitely get in touch with them about that. The last thing uh, I'll briefly touch on is trade. As many of you know, the U.S.-Mexico-Canada Agreement, or USMCA, did enter into force on July 1st of this year, so just over a month ago. Uh, we have heard a lot of positive reports about USMCA. Uh, there is some concern in the dairy industry about Canada fulfilling their obligations, so we continue to monitor that very closely. We are also watching uh, really closely the negotiations that are ongoing between the U.S. and the United Kingdom. They kicked off trade negotiations earlier this year. A lot of those negotiations have been held virtually, which um, is, is not generally how that's done. So that's pretty historic for that to 
uh, that to happen that way, but we do understand that those are moving forward. One particular area of concern uh, with the United Kingdom and trade is whether or not the United Kingdom will adopt some of the same standards that the EU has, particularly on uh, beef production, but also on some biotech issues as well. So uh, we did work with Congressman Jason Smith a couple of weeks ago. He had the opportunity to sit down with uh, U.S. Trade Representative Ambassador Robert Lighthizer, uh, and we worked with Congressman Smith to really bring that issue of beef trade in the United Kingdom to the forefront and to be sure that uh, as USTR is negotiating with the UK, that they're keeping that top of mind as they fight for a fair deal for farmers and ranchers. The last thing on trade uh, is that we are still watching very closely the China phase one deal. Uh, China has made some pretty large purchases of US commodities over the past couple of weeks and couple of months. Uh, unfortunately, the data would suggest that they are still lagging in the purchasing uh, rate in order to fulfill those phase one obligations. So that's something we're keeping a very close eye on. I know American Farm Bureau is keeping a very close eye on that as well. Uh, and we'll continue to advocate that all of those obligations be met and keep that at the forefront of our uh, trade discussions as we're having those with members of the administration and with the congressional delegation. There's certainly a lot going on uh, election-wise, and BJ kind of mentioned that at the beginning of this call. Um, he and I are gonna be covering that tomorrow, so definitely be sure to tune in with us. Um, and with that, we are gonna hold questions for our staff updates until um, the next two speakers go, but I will turn it over to Leslie Holloway. Leslie? Okay, I'm ready to start then. Um, there's been a lot going on in the regulatory arena and the deregulatory efforts that have been started at both the state and the federal levels have continued. Um, it's really been nonstop, uh, some related to the COVID-19, but many of the other things that have already been underway still continuing to go at a pretty fast pace. Um, as a result of the pandemic, Governor Parson had already um, released some waivers and some relief measures. About 170 total statutes and regulations were um, affected by that initial wave of activity through March. And at the presidential level, we have executive orders coming out just about every day from President Trump pertaining to regulatory relief and some of the temporary measures that have been put into place potentially being continued now on a permanent basis. Um, examples of some of those pertain to some of the, the trucking regulations, hours of service in particular, pesticide applicator licensing, um, non-physician healthcare providers, trying to get more access to more providers without as much regulation. Telehealth services have also been somewhat deregulated uh, American Farm Bureau has been active with the coalition at the national level, uh, working to try to get some of those things put into um, permanent status uh, on a regulatory relief basis. Environmental regulatory reform, we've just heard about that to uh, some degree from Travis Cushman, and, and Travis has been very involved, working very hard uh, on our behalf, on your behalf and our behalf, to try to make sure that things like the Navigable Waters Protection Rule um, are held up in court and that went into effect actually in June. So that is something that has also happened this summer among a num number of other environmental regulatory activity activities. There was a 
uh, EPA issued a new regulation pertaining to what's known as 401 certification under the Clean Water Act, which is one of the reasons why the costs of the permits are what Travis indicated uh, can be pretty expensive, um, at least had been up until now under the Clean Water Act. But that certification process um, involves Corps of Engineers and Fish and Wildlife Service and really had been very uh, burdensome in that process. The EPA has taken action to try to relieve some of that. If you had picked up on the stories that have run through uh, several years now in the magazine as well as on Focus and on social media with the Stream Bank Stabilization Project, somewhat related to the 401 certification, I can provide a little bit of an update there. And it appears that the Corps of Engineers still has that project. This would be the Gasconade County, Marys County location where um, former state board member Ron Hardicke working with current state board member Chris Brundick on trying to keep that project going. Um, assuming Department of Natural Resources can continue to provide funding and, and that's all um, on hold right now as a result of the budget constraints, constraints that the state's under. But there is a good possibility that that project will continue to move forward and we're, we're certainly keeping our fingers crossed there. Uh, also at the federal level, the National Environmental Policy Act, the president had determined that there was an overhaul and it had been over 40 years since the last time there'd been a comprehensive look at the National Environmental Policy Act, also known as NEPA, but they did do an overhaul uh, of it. And so hopefully that will also result in lower costs and less red tape on some of these environmental activities. Specific to air quality, uh, air quality standards, there have been some rulings from EPA this summer pertaining to ozone and providing cost benefit analyses for different regulations that had not been required before under the Clean Air Act. And then most recently, there's been a proposal on the Endangered Species Act to try to change the way that critical habitat is defined in a manner that would be uh, less onerous in those situations where there might be an endangered species found in an area. So a lot of activity going on uh, still with regulatory reform. I'll switch gears and talk a little bit about rural health care. We've also had a lot of activity prompted by the COVID-19 situation, but also aside from that, the uh, USDA loan repayments um, that rural hospitals are held to had the deadline on some of those payments was extended uh, thanks to our work, Missouri Farm Bureau's work with the uh, Farm Service Agency and Jeff Case, um, excuse me, with Rural Development and Jeff Case working there. Also the Missouri Hospital Association worked with us uh, on that effort. Rural health clinics have gained quite a bit of uh, funding during the pandemic, Missouri actually is the top state for numbers of rural health clinics. We have 351 and Texas comes in second at 303, but Missouri actually got the highest allocation of funding, federal funding for COVID-19 testing. And American Farm Bureau has also been working at the federal level to try to increase funding for the community health centers. Um, Governor Parsons uh, Rural Broadband Initiative, BJ mentioned, and there have also been uh, proposals recently by the Trump administration pertaining to rural health and telehealth access, an executive order that has called on the Health and Human Services Department to work with Secretary Purdue at Agriculture 
to come up with a strategy to improve communications, healthcare infrastructure in rural America. Um, Health and Human Services also is to come up with a model for Medicare reimbursement payments to rural health care providers. And in fact, they have already proposed just within the past week, expanding the procedures that are paid by Medicare for hospital outpatients and lowering out-of-pocket uh, drug costs. Um, finally, a, a recommendation is um, scheduled from Health and Human Services to increase provider access and improve mental health in rural America. The um, Rural Community Toolbox that the White House announced is also providing a clearinghouse of information and assistance available mm -hmm. for substance abuse issues. And so that, that is also part of the, the rural health care mix. But um, mental health initiatives, American Farm Bureau is broadening the initial um, announcement that they had on the rural resilience program to the rural state of mind program. And so we are awaiting some additional information to try to incorporate that into more of a state level type, type program. But we are also continuing to work with University of Missouri Extension on some of the proposals that they have already come out with pertaining to telehealth, the uh, telehealth counseling that they initiated in the spring, um, as well as the mental health toolkit that they announced in the spring. Extension funding, though, um, as you would imagine, is also somewhat in question due to the budget situation. So some of those things are not necessarily happening. Um, last two issues that I thought I might touch on, the railroad crossing issue, the blocked railroad crossings that had come up during the policy process last fall. We have continued to try to convey those problems to uh, MoDOT. And um, in fact, just this week, yeah, I've heard back from MoDOT on one situation where they did determine that a crossing was out of compliance. And so they are working with the railroad to get that um, addressed. So if anybody has any of those situations, please continue to provide those. It's also an initiative at the federal level with the US Department of Transportation seeing this as a safety issue. and. Bump, um, ramping up ways to try to help uh, address those concerns uh, at that level. And then finally on the county health ordinances and Senate Bill 391, the um, litigation that has been underway in Cole County and Cooper County is still ongoing. We had thought that there might be a ruling out of Cole County before now, but that was extended when the um, pro county health ordinance uh, folks filed another motion that um, added a delay, put, delayed the process further. There has been a, a new um, court uh, motion, court activity started in Knox County as a result of a, a CAFO that has been started there. And so there, there is now a, a court action underway there. And we may have yet a third um, uh, situation where we're involved in legal activity pertaining to Senate Bill 391. And so I will thank everyone uh, for joining us today. And we will bring up for staff, last staff update for today will be Kelly Smith, Senior Director of Marketing and Commodities. Kelly. All right, joining us now is Kelly Smith, Senior Director of Marketing and Commodities. Kelly. Alrighty, thanks everyone. Sorry for those uh, technical difficulties there. Uh, before I get into the two brief things I'd like to discuss with you all today, um, 
If you are on a commodity advisory committee, we will be rescheduling those meetings uh, in the very near future uh, with that. So be watching your emails for that. Uh, we will be using Zoom uh, to do that and they'll be all virtually uh, scheduled. So be watching in the next week to 10 days for uh, rescheduling those particular meetings. I'd like to remind everybody, if you are registered to vote in the Missouri Beef Industry Council uh, elections, those ballots will be being mailed to you uh, about on August the 14th. Uh, Farm Bureau is a nominating organization for uh, the MBIC elections. We have three candidates this time uh, that we would like for you to consider to support. Uh, in Region 2, Nathan Martin is the incumbent. He's from Centralia. Uh, in Region 3, Ted Cunningham is from Salem, Dent County. And in Region 4, Keith Baxter is from Rogersville, Green County. So if you're registered to vote, you'll be getting those uh, ballots from the Missouri Department of Agriculture. You should be receiving a letter from those particular candidates about three days uh, before the election uh, with that. The other thing I'd like to um, remind you all about too is on July the 2nd, USDA APHIS uh, sent a press release out saying that they would be accepting comments on transition to the RFID official identification tags for the animal disease traceability program. And before we start getting too excited in regards to this, uh, these identification tags are the ones that are currently being used for the animal disease traceability program. If you are uh, have beef cattle, dairy cattle, and so forth, those are the metal bright tags that have been used for years. Uh, but they are considering moving to um, the RFID tags for those with that. Uh, the only animals that would be identified are the ones currently that are being required to be ID'd uh, with an official uh, tag approved by uh, USDA uh, with that. They will be accepting comments till uh, October the 5th, 2020 uh, with that. Um, and the other thing too is uh, just to remind on this, uh, beef feeder cattle are exempt uh, from this ID process. So it's not all cattle, it's just the ones that are required for animal disease uh, traceability. The timeline that they are looking on uh, to implement this is uh, January 1st, 2023. So that's two or three, couple of years out anyways, two and a half years out with that. Farm Bureau will be writing comments, AFBF will also, and this will be one of the topics that our Beef Advisory Committee uh, will discuss during their meeting. And Blake, I'm gonna turn it back over to you. All right, thank you, Kelly, BJ, Leslie, and uh, Spencer, are there any questions from anyone? All right, thank you all for your patience this afternoon. And uh, we will return uh, this evening with session number four uh, at 7 p.m. It will be on real crime. We're looking forward to that and looking forward to seeing all of you again. And uh, with that, I thank all of the presenters for this session this afternoon and look forward to talking to you tonight. Thank you. <laughs>